You're listening to Are You Content? The Content Podcast. Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast. It's definitely been a minute. I hope you and your families are doing well during this evolving COVID-19 pandemic. Our last episode was published May 20th. I took a break to move, and just before then, I was fortunate that spring was fairly busy with client work. It has since tapered off a bit due to a slowdown in one of the key industries I write for, but I'm staying the course and getting back into the swing of things with some of my own content creation. Due to the pandemic and due to the fact that in-person networking opportunities have been limited, I may have to move this podcast to an online video chat format and record the audio, so I'm definitely open to your recommendations for platforms. So this is episode four, part two, and as a refresher, we're talking about discontent in content creation with Stephen Klett, content creator, critically acclaimed poet, and the co-founder of a growing Facebook group called Mark Fisher Memes for Hauntological Teens. Part one with Steve was actually recorded in early March. That was just before the COVID-19 shutdowns and much before the mass civil unrest sparked by incidents of police violence against people of color. When we recorded part one, the membership of the Mark Fisher Facebook group was 3,300 people. Amazingly, group membership has basically doubled during the pandemic to 7,300 members. I spoke to Steve about this, and we do think that the fast growth speaks to the current state of the world economy compounded by recent affairs. At the time of this recording, we're in a situation where anxious parents are waiting to see if schools will reopen, and if not, how they're going to balance their work obligations. Science, particularly mask wearing to contain the spread of the virus, has somehow become a political debate, all while the U.S. beat its own daily record of total new coronavirus cases at least nine times in a month, according to a CNN report. Meanwhile, NPR reports that by the end of this month, it's July 2020, by the way, millions of American workers are set to lose the $600 per week unemployment assistance from the federal government they had received during the pandemic. It's, quote, leaving many in a high state of anxiety, end quote. Here in the U.S., despite what current leadership may tell us, the economy appears to be experiencing a slower recovery. NPR interviewed Indivar Duda Gupta. He's the co-executive director of Georgetown's Center on Poverty and Inequality, and he shed some light on what's really going on with the economic recovery. He says, quote, The reality of why people aren't working today has nothing to do with the generosity of unemployment insurance benefits. People aren't working today because there is a virus that's contagious, that's lethal, and that is not being contained. People aren't working today because they don't have childcare or paid leave. People aren't working today because there aren't enough safe workplaces for them to go to. The $600 increase, if anything, is stabilizing the economy growing employment, and has posed no barrier to date on the record increases in employment that we've seen in recent months, end quote. He predicts that when the $600 per week disappears, families will suffer homelessness and eviction, as well as food insecurity and hunger. Black and Latino families will be affected disproportionately compared to white families due to America's inherent economic inequality. And so that question remains, how in 2020 does the wealthiest nation in the world continue to have such vast income inequality? In a country where giant corporations thrive, why is it such a struggle to take care of our own and help people have more opportunity to improve their lives? Why are people with two or three jobs struggling to make ends meet? And now the question for us 
is how do we tie this back to content creation? For many, content writing is a side hustle. It's how many choose to participate in this so-called gig economy. Now, one time, affordable content was my side hustle. However, I was not content with working all day in an office at a trade magazine and then at night creating more client content. I was a few years younger, not in a relationship at that time. Now, I was never a partier. I didn't spend money on lavish things. I was and still am a discount shopper. So eventually, through some sacrifice, I was able to change my career and thankfully change my life for the better. But the point is not lost. I sacrificed work-life balance in my mid to late 20s in order to do that. Not everyone can do that and devote themselves to work. Achieving work-life balance isn't a nice option for some. It's an absolute necessity. Some people start families early or they have to care for family members. They find themselves working in the gig economy, taking on multiple jobs and struggling to keep up and make ends meet. So if you're in this content marketing world and content is your side hustle, this conversation may very well apply to you. Guys, this is an uncertain time and in a vacuum of leadership and real solutions, people find their own answers. I theorize that people may be seeking out and connecting with the writings of Mark Fisher. Again, Mark Fisher is a British philosopher and author of the groundbreaking 2009 book, Capitalist Realism, Is There No Alternative? If you haven't listened to part one of this episode, I highly recommend going back and doing so because it provides more context and background of Mark Fisher and his thoughts on the gig economy. In part two, Steve continues the philosophical discussion and we provide some real life examples of discontent and content creation from our own careers. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the discussion. I mean, just to see if we can extract things now, we're I would imagine this audience is capitalist. <laughs> I, I myself have said I am a capitalist, but this idea of an alternate, I think, is interesting to me. Um, I think that people shouldn't be scared of talking about alternatives, what they might look like and how we can make society better and what kind of social nets we can improve upon. I just think people get very... Um, nervous about those conversations and when they shouldn't be yes but i think what really hits on this is like a zoning in on the problems mm -hmm. like the problems of the content writer right, <laughs> like right. <laughs> the, the problems of yeah the gig worker the problems for the delivery guy the problems with technology all these things that we accept as a part of our real as a right. as a, like part, a part of, of social fabric when like 10 years ago we didn't require smartphones in order for us to have a job um yeah there's something that our entire society has like majorly shifted mm. um in terms of what we accept as necessary in order to survive i mean i couldn't do my job right now as a delivery driver for a pharmaceutical without an app that they then make me pay for. Do you have to pay for it? Yeah. Or, well, I mean, they take... Because of your cell phone use? No, they take part of my paycheck out for the app. Oh, jeez. And you see what I mean. That's like... These, like, are, these are like... I, I've heard a worse example of this, and this is when I was at... Um, it was really funny. My mom and I walked into um, Tilted Kilt restaurant not knowing what it was it was a new restaurant that had opened and the waitress comes out with her you know it's sort of like a like an irish or celtic hooters 
And um, we, you know, my mom and I didn't know. It was like one shower. We were shopping at a mall. And we wound up having a conversation with the waitress, who was very nice. And she said that the company made her pay for her own uniform. And I thought that that was just, like, horrible. I mean, I... I understand that there's high turnover in the restaurant industry, but I also thought that it was kind of demeaning to make her pay for the, her own uniform. I don't know. So to some extent, using technology, that's what it kind of reminds me of. But to kind of bring it back to the, the 60s and 70s, he saw this shift going from like this very revolutionary spirit of the 60s and 70s and all these kind of anarchic kind of things and then promising a better way to organize mm -hmm. the world around us. All of that just collapsed. You know, it wasn't so long ago. It was 50 years ago we right. thought of reorganizing it, whether it was the feminist movement, whether it was the black liberation movement, whether whatever the hippie acid movement. You know, all these things were threatening to capital. And capital made concessions, they put more women in the workplace, like not immediately, they gave black people the rights to vote, they ended Jim Crow law, you know, or they ended discriminatory practices, but, you know, they gave you like crumbs of change right. to make it so that you didn't want to rise up and reorganize society because something was deeply wrong. Mm. And that has never been changed that has never like it's only gotten wider the gap between people that are allowed to make it versus those that are just barely hanging on right um, well and all those people of the 60s and early 70s they became the reagan army yeah, of they, the 1980s they became dis yeah dis disillusioned around the time that like he talks about 79, like, was the collapse of change, you know, and then the Berlin Wall falling down, and this kind of celebration without any reflection on, okay, if we won, what does winning look like? Right. Um, and this is what winning looks like, you know, 30, <laughs> 30 years <Yeah>. later. <laughs> For the entirety of my lifespan, this is what winning has looked like. It looks like minimum wage jobs, a collapse of, like, any notion of social safety net, no job security, and yeah. an inability to make careers out of anything to do with the arts. Um, people are so, like, the older generation, boomers in particular, are so quick to shit on millennials without thinking, you know, I mean, some of them do. Some of them think critically about how the opportunities don't exist now like they did during another time. You know, th there's less and you, economic why, opportunity. And why are you bitching and moaning? Like, why don't you pull yourself by the bootstraps? Why don't you right. start your own company? Well, you started your own company, and now you have to have four in order to do one. Right. Like, like, that is not normal. And, like, it turns your life into this rat race of trying to have your time equated to money and your money equated with time and you have to literally like schedule times you you can be with your partner or your family because otherwise you'd be losing money i have a planner actually a new planner that has uh, I, I like the planner because it you know it keeps me focused during the day but it actually has like uh, as part of their weekly section like personal 
family relationships like you're you're planning you're like scheduling that time in and like making objectives about like how you're gonna you know and it didn't used to be the way that's the like that's again something has been taken from you Mm -hmm. like yes it sucked to have the same job for 40 years and to have a nine to five that was so regimented that like every second of your day you didn't have any autonomy outside of like going to a factory or you know being an industrialized like person sucked but you also had a home you also had a family to come home to you know failing marriages expecta- <laughs> no expectations that right. were of the time that you know admittedly we might have gotten better at um, as a society but as a trade-off, now you have 10 jobs. Now you have no job security. Right. Now you have emails from the very second you wake up to the very second you go to bed. The expectation that you have to make quotas, that you have to do paperwork. Like, if you're a teacher, and, and you know, Mark Fisher was a teacher, he talked about how much time the actual bureaucracy oh, of doing... Yeah of doing your self-evaluations was part of, like, this great propaganda, (laughs) like, this great, like, thing to make you think you're the problem or at least, like, you know, a waste of energy, just a waste of, like, self-examination. Right. And that that kind of works into the way in which they control you. Yeah, no, that's a whole... I mean, there's been a whole privatization of public education and... Testing has been a huge part of that, and one of the things that teachers hate about teaching, you know, they love they love teaching and being in the classroom. I'm I'm just speaking. I'm not a teacher, but I'm speaking from experience of family members. You know, they love teaching. They love their jobs of teaching, but it's just that this push towards. If you look at like what is the root of what they don't like, it's the corporate influence and the privatization, like testing, for instance. Testing. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that is a whole chapter of his book, is the Kafkaesque kind of amount of bureaucracy within the community college level or the, like, universities in Britain, the amount of testing, the amount of, like, the way in which education then becomes a business. Yes, um, right. That becomes far more corporate and bureaucratic than anything in the in in soviet systems (laughs) like like this kind of notion that soviet bureaucracy was the worst which it was pretty bad um and it created a lot of lies in the news and you know it was very controlled but that pales in comparison to like the totalitarian nature of our education system. Mm-hmm. The fact that we have to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars just to be privileged to get a fucking English degree. <laughs> like, like, As uh, the comedian uh, John, John Mulaney, Mulaney said. $120,000 to learn a language I already spoke. <laughs> You know, these are all diagnoses of the problems of when 
these institutions lack public funding or lack societal safety nets that have been eroded over time and are now just privatized, branded. You know, he also talks a lot about branding, which could be a whole other podcast. Because <laughs> you can see, already see how it would work into his philosophy. Right. That it, you know, the kind of experiential nature of corporate branding makes it so that you don't know when you're being advertised to. Oh, yeah. It is, you know, that separation between work and life, but also, like, the separation between when you're being advertised to and when you're not being advertised is just blurred. Which is a great segue back into sort of where we started with the group on Facebook that you run. Yeah. It's a philosophy group. It's not because there's a big push, I think, in the content marketing world and just marketing world in general to create these communities. And they have, you know, like-minded people. They want to provide value in these online communities. And there's this fine line that everybody's always walking between providing value and then trying to sell to the people in the community. <laughs> well, the, the Facebook group um, comes out of a tradition in itself of non-profit kind of groups that are centered around philosophers. Right. And... I've never been a part of a Facebook group that's ever tried to sell me anything mm -hmm. other than votes for Bernie Sanders. <laughs> like, right. Other than that... I have been. I've been part of, uh, just for context, like, I've been part of a social media marketing group that provided value. There was a lot of social media marketers in it, but part of it was a funnel to attend their events that you would have to pay for. Mm. You know? And also, you paid to be in the group. You paid to unlock access to the group. That is insane. You know? But this kind of follows... Like, there's a very large Mikel Foucault group, Foucault's Moist Meat Mason, or something like that, <laughs> that has, like, 11,000 11, people in it, or okay. 12,000 where, where is your membership right now? 3,300. That's good. And it's only, what, like a... A year. A year old. How do you think people are finding it? Because it's people from all around the world, you said, right? Yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of people from Britain... Like when the uh, British elections were coming up, um, there was a large push by people because Mark Fisher was in Jeremy Corbyn's manifesto as one of the architects. Like one of the philosophers that he cites. Yeah, one okay. of the philosophers in the manifesto for the Labour Party that he laid out as quite literally this is a break from neoliberalism and capitalist realism. Like he cites that as part of the political manifesto. And if you don't want to be living in this kind of hellscape that the Tories have provided for you, and you've read Mark Fisher, and there's, like, statues for Mark Fisher over there, like, he's a cultural icon to, you know, mitigating levels, certainly more so than over here. You know, and I think there was a large influx of people that were exposed to his writing through that. Right, and it's a private group, but people can publicly find it. Mm -hmm. And probably by just maybe searching Mark Fisher in Sur Facebook. Searching Mark Fisher, like people going to school that have read him. or He's one of the most accessible philosophers I've ever read. Mm -hmm. His capitalist realism is 
86 pages. Yeah, right, I read that. It was slim. It's very slim. It's got like 10 chapters. Each chapter is like nine pages long. It's very accessible language. It's very compact language. And it also has a lot of fun cultural references to kind of go, oh, I saw that movie. Like it starts out... It's relatable. Yeah, it starts out with... um, the way he kind of constructs the argument is starts out with children of men mm-hmm. and he talks about the dystopian quality to that people living in cages next to Starbucks <laughs> um, and how that future has already come that's already our present right like that was supposed to be like a dystopian hell future in the you know future and now less than five years later after the movie that's more true than ever. Right. And isn't it funny how a movie made about the inability to procreate a new generation is a perfect metaphor for neoliberalism and it's unable to birth a future, to show an alternative, to have this kind of opportunity for children, not just of children, but this kind of, like, political inability to create the new. Mm, interesting. Um, so he uses that as like this very poetic kind of way of introducing you that's very engaging. Nice. Um, I want to bring Matt in here. He's been uh, hanging out in the back here monitoring the audio, but he's actually a member of the Mark Fisher group. And I got him to read Capitalist Realism and he was like updating me every like yeah. every chapter. <laughs> I'm sharing a mic with Matt. Matt, what has the group membership been like for you? Honestly, they're one of the more positive groups I've ever been a part of. Like, it's pretty academic, and they're just really knowledgeable about Mark Fisher. Like, there's a lot of people trying to write papers about him or, like, going through his videos and saying, hey, does anybody know if they have when Mark Fisher spoke at this place online or available or asking about his works or even incorporating it into like news articles about him and things like that. So I think that's pretty unique to find something that's not just like SpongeBob memes or like something like that where it's really focused and you're going to learn something more often than not. And, uh, you know, shout out to the group. I'm sure I'll post this for them. This is for them (laughs) also. Um, It's good. I've loved, I mean, I've never really done it before, but it's um, most of the people in the group are extremely smart. We've had very little problem. It's been very easy to be the administrator. You did did have to ban one person. We had to ban one person. (laughs) I I love this story. Why? Uh, Um... (laughs) Oh, no, uh, the, there, the, was, <laughs> there was somebody who um, was spamming Shrek memes or GIFs <laughs> of Shrek. I, know, I saw it. I was like, I guess I'm missing the point. Like, I don't know what this Shrek and, thing is about. And we had to ask him, why are you doing this? And he just spammed more Shrek memes. <laughs> and so we, we got rid of him. Um, we gave him the, as they call it, the, the gray name. Because <laughs> when you get banned, it shows up as a gray name. Right. But other than that, like, there's been a couple other things flagged as inappropriate for the group, uh, and we've dealt with it pretty easily. But there hasn't been a 
a major incident. Like there hasn't been an infiltration. Right, from anyone right. inciting other people to violence or something? Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's more like uh, we haven't had an infiltration from right wing groups because mm-hmm. that happens a lot on the left. Right wingers will come in okay. and and start shit just to monitor or dox people on the left, and we haven't had that happen. I think it's because it's probably too niche and too arcane for that kind of like if it was a bernie sanders meme stash or right. you know something that's obviously political uh but it's just kind of a nerdy soft-spoken philosopher from england right who you know in terms of like people that i read that you know really spoke to me as i said you know i read him and it was a certain time of my life as a content writer mm-hmm. that it felt like it spoke to me specifically yeah. and that i think is a, a rare thing definitely especially from like a philosopher who do, who, who does right. that <laughs> <laughs> while you're in this like grind with work you found some solace in the writings and uh speeches of the philosopher um yeah and his lectures are all over they're they're really good he's very timid and very nervous because he is very self-conscious and he rarely did speeches but when he did like it takes him a little bit to work his way you know this confidence but by the end of his speeches they're like poetic almost like and almost angry and valiant Mm -hmm. and like the system is fucked and we need to do (laughs) something about it because there is no alternative and you know there are glimmers of hope for a mass movement to try and change that what would you like to see from the content marketing world like based on your experiences with mark fisher and his teachings what changes would you like to see in this whole content production landscape? Content writers need to unionize. I mean, that... There is a freelancer's union. There's a freelancer union, but I don't think that most people think of it or have access to it. Or, like, the notion that freelancing is this free world that you can just do whatever you want because it's full of opportunity. It's anxiety inducing Mm. when I hear people talking about it in those terms having lived it but really what I think needs to happen is well for one thing more public ownership of the internet Mm -hmm. like the ability for corporations and you know free market entrepreneurship to be the de facto mode of production is only leading to massive 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 exploitation of workers and most of the jobs i've had on the internet are voluntary positions or minimum to low wage you go out and do a project that takes you six hours and you get paid something that you would normally get paid for two right and that happens that can happen a lot in freelancing and and that that kind of lack of accountability by corporations it's often left to the worker to advocate for themselves you know like they have to like lay like i recently had to do that with like a client just like break down the amount of time something was taking me and advocate for a higher rate for my time and but it's incumbent on you as a freelancer like to do that and the notion that you can be easily replaced is always there that's oh definitely that's, yeah. <laughs> that's part of the crippling 
notion of having no accountability, no public regulation. Why would a corporation pay you more for your time if they can find any Tom, Dick, or Harry, you know, on Craigslist to do what you're doing, but for less. Worse yet, they'll go, you have to look for English speakers in a, um, a foreign country who will work at well, yeah. cut rate. And, like, that's what I experienced even at the large newspapers that could technically pay you is that they outsourced half of their content to India during the night hours. Right. Like, it was a, a content dearth you know globalism and free market capitalism and the ability for communication to go from one side of the world to the other was supposed to be this utopian thing it is i mean it's a utopian thing for ceos who own websites and for people who are lucky and gamble on the right brand but for the people that work for them most of your jobs are outsourced to content farms in india Um, And Singapore, China, you know, you name it, you can find content companies that will compete for wages. Um, Without regulation and with the Wild West that was so promising in the Internet, our ability to create value and get paid for reasonable wages diminished immensely um, since this millennium. (laughs) Yeah. And that goes back to what we started out with. What can you think of that we have done in 20, these Mm -hmm. past 20 years that we weren't able to do in the 20th century? The only thing that has changed is less opportunity, less work, and less creativity. I can think of one technology, the cloud, cloud cloud-based technology, I feel like is maybe the one technology. You you disagree, Matt? The service. Is Matt saying it's just servers? Okay, yeah. It's just, you know, I don't know. The, like, the, the lightning quick speed of it. Well, it's that's like, that's not new. That's just improving. For the same reason as so you can get more work done and pay less for it. Right. Like, <laughs> the cloud only provides less payment that corporations have to use on i don't know what would you use paying for cloud storage by the way is just insane yeah (laughs) like what i pay in dropbox fees and everything and that's (laughs) that's spending from the worker not right it's space somewhere you're just paying for you're paying for the service but whereas before you know if you wanted to get communication to a ceo i don't know on the other side of the country you'd have to like send it by train and it would return you know three days before you got like telegram telegram or whatever but you know the ability to make money at a very high rate and to create content at a very high rate that could get out to a massive audience in the blink of an eye has only helped the millionaires and billionaires (laughs) oh oh, Bernie Sanders has joined us and (laughs) And has really hurt an average worker's ability to make ends meet. This speaks to the thesis of my podcast, which I talk a lot about the balance of quantity of content versus quality of content and trying to find that symbiotic harmony that everybody can live with on both sides of the equation, both the company paying for the content and the person creating the content. I just feel like it's a graveyard. 
<laughs> there's a graveyard of content, and you know, I felt like that when I was producing content for these websites. I was pumping out five articles a day sometimes, right? For things that were only going to be looked at for less than 24 hours. Right. That's sometimes how I feel creating content. Like, and if people are agonizing over something in our, in our process, and it's just like we can, like we're trying to just close the loop and put a stamp on it and say like the project is done but it keeps going like round and round like taking up a lot of people's time and I'm just like we're lucky you know if people get, to, get to this page like if we're stuck on something on page five out of six you know we're just lucky if people click on it at all read it at all um it's the it's the quantity factor people are just inundated with content so I try to encourage people like don't get so caught up in well, every single detail. I could talk about this whole philosophy as applied to journalism like for hours and hours because the necessity to create a certain amount of content that then gets a minimal amount of clicks that paid for the advertising revenue that could then pay me as the worker was this carrot and stick um, mm -hmm. that was unsustainable. And that's one thing that I think is obvious in all that I've talked about tonight about Mark Fisher is that is it is unsustainable as a model for the way in which we organize our thinking and the way that we organize our, our work. It's unsustainable because you are creating this content for, like, gambling that these people will click on it. There's, like ways you could fix the gamble there's ways in which you can SEO, SEO it is just right. like trying to fix a game mm -hmm. uh, in your favor and hoping that people click on it because somebody else told you that it was a word that other people click on it's like you're trying to fix the game and the game is fixed against you because you have to go then do the same game over again in your next article. Right. And it's just this receding horizon of opportunity yeah. where you constantly have to create more content for less gain. Or you constantly have to become more creative. Or in the case of things like BuzzFeed, you just make the same list article. Um, Listicles. Because that's your thing and it requires no creativity. It's, a, it's formulaic writing at that point. Quality and quantity breaks down mm -hmm. like there is no quality there's completely quantity and i think that is the direction that the internet is is headed at least it was in my experience as a writer that quality was a complete afterthought why would you worry about quantity when something was thrown away as quickly as it was created right. no i still write um for Print at at some points it's few and far between. I mostly do online. Where do you think print fits into the, a world like this? When's the last time you read a newspaper? <laughs> um, I actually you know, a couple days ago I pick up the Tri City News. It's an Asbury Park uh, sort of arts and entertainment newspaper. 
When's a lot the, of advertisements in it. When's the last time you paid for a newspaper? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, I can't remember. <laughs> and even better, when's the last time you paid for a subscription to a newspaper? And, uh, I, I think I remember my parents paying this kid with like a local newspaper. He used to come around and collect the subscription money, and that was in the 1990s. I feel like 2000 hit, and that went away. <laughs> I I had a Rolling Stones subscription that my parents um, unwittingly got in the 1990s that I can they continued paying for through to, as you said, the 2000s, and then they stopped paying. Mm-hmm. But... Like a haunted, like a haunting. <laughs> There's the hauntology. Like the haunting thing that Capital has. They kept sending. They kept sending they Rolling Stone yeah. to my door, possibly to this day, once a month, because they didn't have anywhere else to send it. Like in hopes that you will renew. In hopes that it will renew. Like a lot of magazines do that now. And. It's just like a graveyard. The magazine that I write for primarily, you know, when I am writing print articles, they don't have paid subscription. It's all the production of it is paid for by the advertisements. Mm -hmm. That's their model. Well, that's the model of the Internet as well, Mm -hmm. that the advertisements will pay for the writing itself. And you have to meet like 100,000 clicks in order to pay for the value of the article. Right. <laughs> like something ridiculous. In in print, they guarantee a subscription base yeah. to the advertisers. That's how that works. Which is like one of those things about quality versus quantity right there. Mm-hmm. How good are the advertisements? And it's one of those things like the Super Bowl where the... The advertisements are more interesting than the game. What happened with this print magazine is that I feel like when I first started working there, there were more advertisements in the pages, but then it changed where the the companies wanted to sponsor the content more rather than the advertisements because it had a better chance of being read. We did take a lot of pride in, like, the quality of the articles, you know, and that's how their models started shifting more. It became more about... Sponsored content. Sponsored content. Articles that they were kind of putting up and And backing. And then you realize most content is sponsored content. Yeah. And the blurring of the line. Oh, the the blurring, yes. There was... You start to lose that separation of church and state between um, advertising and, like, factual... Reporting, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, you well, couldn't really well, say if people don't like something in the article. You know what I mean? Like, you, because it's all testimonial. The International Business Times. I worked for them, and they had this model, same model, like carrot and stick. You have to make a certain number of clicks in order to pay for your articles, and if you do make it, you'll get a bonus based on how many clicks you got past a hundred thousand or something like that. Which is a horrible model. <laughs> it is depressing. Yeah. And a couple of weeks after I left, they got raided by the FBI. Oh, um, and you want to know what their crime was? Why? They, they took their servers because. They'd been tipped off that they'd been juking the stats and they'd Uh, been paying bots to click on the articles to get, to inflate the amount of clicks that they mm -hmm. got to then sell. Yeah, 
the, to right the to advertisers. the advertisers. Wah, if you wah. want, if you want yeah. a, if you want an example of the simulations simulating success, getting fake bots to click on your articles to then sell those stats to advertisers so you can sustain your business is a really poor model. Right. And really just totalitarian as a model than Mm -hmm. anything I've ever experienced. Right. Just between expecting you to meet a certain number of clicks every day to policing your every move, surveilling your every move, and then to find out later that they were faking their own success to begin with, really. And they were literally on Wall Street. Like, (laughs) uh, I I was in a building on Wall Street. Anyways, that, I think they sold the company to Newsweek or they melded it. It was not fun. Bad (laughs) news. It was not fun. Uh, and really highlighted that kind of content quality versus quantity yeah. breakdown that we're talking about. I'm I'm just ranting about ex- former jobs now, <laughs> but I think it plays into this idea of is there no alternative? Is there no better way to organize our minds? Is there no better way to organize our job security, our ability to have social services? Our, our ability to have a job that can last longer than six months. Right. That is what Mark Fisher talks about endlessly to the day he died. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you running through this. I think it's a lot to think about. It's definitely, like, over our conversations over the past few weeks, made me think about the state of content discontent more critically you know i named it you know are you content the content podcast um not knowing this whole philosophy that you were uh you and matt have been studying in the in the background and then it sort of um coincidentally led to this uh conversation about mark fisher and some of the things that he said about uh, the digital age and content production and the gig economy the gig economy and the the failures of the political environment in which that is the norm right so um we'll leave with a silver lining is there a silver lining in this (laughs) there's a silver lining in everything it's just digital (laughs) (laughs) thanks for inviting me to do this I thought this was a perfect venue to kind of rant about it definitely and it's fun as a band to get together after practice I hope this rain cut you know gives a nice ambiance yeah the the rain set in as you're yes and this foggy window here because we've been sitting in here for a while I really like the word hauntology as well I think it's really cool as a concept it is thanks again for taking some time to speak with me and look forward to editing the podcast and by me I mean Matt (laughs) it's not in the interest of the mainstream media to encourage people to question capitalism though is it Newspapers, for example, are profit-seeking businesses owned by very wealthy people. They're, they're defeatist because we can't go anywhere. I mean, like, I, I, we, we can't go anywhere without either the media is reformed or we actually compete on terrain, which, you know, just is, is not favourable to us. But it doesn't mean that we, uh, we ought to concede it, I think. I mean, I think uh, reading Nick Davis's book, Flat Earth News, is very interesting, uh, you know, which sort of um, 
well, it's just vindicate everything you've said about, you know, with um, newspapers, 60% of broadsheet content comes from PR. I guess what's interesting about that, though, is that isn't that the owners of the newspapers collude with the PR companies as such. It's more that it's a direct consequence of underfunding of journalism. You know, if journalists are, are required to do turn around 10 stories a day, they won't be out on the streets doing investigative reporting. They'll be rewriting press releases. But I think that, that this is susceptible to, to influence by us as well. And what Davis calls, the, you know, these astroturf groups, to, um, you know, play on the idea of um, grassroots organisations. So a lot of the things which appear in the, um, the, the paper as if they'd come from grassroots organisations, in fact, have come from these corporate astroturf PR um, bodies or whatever. But, you know, we need to compete in this. We need our own astroturf bodies, as it were, to compete into this ecology. Well, what gives us um, hope here is, is the fact that um, there isn't a strong a strong agenda being pushed by these journalists, that, that, that they'll accept anything that, almost accept anything that comes into the inbox if it's pushed there with sufficient kind of vigour. And, you know, I, I still think a lot of journalism um, is kind of opportunistic and, um, that if, you know, it's, it's a question of um, our, our organising, I think, to, to intervene into, in, into this ecology. We've seen examples recently of Owen Jones, though, I mean, uh, you know, Owen Jones has been doing, has got all kinds of media on the back of chaps, you know, um, where he's, you know, he's, he's appeared on Daybreak, on um, Sky News, um, you know, right in the heart, you know, right in the heart of this kind of corporate beast. So it can be done. I don't think we can a priori say what can be achieved at this time. Capital is in disarray. The ruling class is in disarray at the moment. And I think if we give up in advance and say, oh, no, no, uh, we'll never get into mainstream media, then... You know, we're doing them a favour. Of course, the other danger is simply constructing everything so we adapt to the existing structures of mainstream media. That, that's, that's, that's also fatal. It's not about toning things down so that we can be accepted. It's about a hegemonic struggle such that we you know we can change, change what is acceptable to say on there. And if, and if we can't do that, then, then, we, then we have failed. And, you know, and that's, that's pretty clear. I mean, the new Labour is the most object lesson in that. If you simply construct your project on the basis of what is it, um, now acceptable in the mainstream and maybe just slightly shifting things over, that, that will fail. And not only will it fail, it produce this kind of political despondency, such as I sort of try and describe in the book, really. But I think there's, you know, there are different... I think we have to go between these two stretches, either staying outside the mainstream media completely or just adapting to what the mainstream media is like now. Well, we have to learn <clears throat> lessons from neoliberals, really. I think that you know they they were capable of changing what the media was, in the same way we we have to imagine that the media can change in our direction. Of course, they've got resources we haven't got, but then we've got resources they haven't got as well. I think, and and, and you know, come back going back to what I was saying earlier on, we, we should be inspired really by the extent to which the triumph of neoliberalism, in a way, showing how things can go from impossible to inevitable. That's the way history goes, that things seem completely off the agenda, there's no way they can happen. Suddenly, things switch where they're the only thing that can happen. Are You Content? The Content Podcast is a production of Affordable Content, LLC, all rights reserved. Hosted by Sam Negreval and edited by Matthew Hyde, with music by Undercover Rabbis, all rights reserved. Connect with affordable content on Facebook and LinkedIn 
And feel free to reach out to me, Sam Negrabel, on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn, or by emailing sam at affordcontent.com. Thank you for listening.